Hello, and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we've been to see Spencer today. Yes. It's been an interesting day of indulgence in the uh, establishment of England. Ah, hasn't it? it has, because we actually. saw Mothering Sunday before that. And I'm surprised at the number of similarities in all sorts of ways that the film share, actually. Um, or at least some, some degree of common ground between them. I was sort of thinking, I said in the podcast on Mothering Sunday, how um, remarkable it was that a film got me to feel sympathy and mm. sadness for the ruling classes. Once in a day is interesting. Twice feels like a Tory conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what Spencer's kind of going for. It's directed by Pablo Larraín, who we've done once before on the podcast with yes. Emma, yes. Um, which was last year, I think. Well, yeah, it was, because it was, I think it was COVID. Yeah, which uh, was a really interesting film. And we saw it on Mubi, and that was a great film. Mm. And we both liked it. And we have both seen Jackie together as well, pre-podcast. Yes, I think I've seen almost everything he's done now, because I've seen No, I've seen Tony Manero... And then something else, this creepy film about an usher that he did. Right. Um, Well, Jackie, Emma, and this are the only three of his that I've seen. This, I think, is the one I've liked least. Ah, I like it very much. Yeah? Yeah. And actually, I think this is the film of his that I like the most. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, Because I have... I have an odd relationship with his films. I just think he's not my sensibility. You know, mm-hmm. so I admire his films, but I always find them like kind of withdrawn or uh, distancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you remember Jackie, it was a little bit like that. Sure. Really, yeah. you know? uh, whereas with this film, I felt like, you know, Kristen Stewart is so great, I think, that you really feel for her. Yeah, so she's in this weekend, uh, it's Christmas. It's the weekend where you sense she decides to leave Charles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it revolves like Marie Antoinette around the necklace. Yeah. So Charles, not out of meanness or spite, but just out of carelessness, has bought the same thing yeah, for his mistress and for her. Yeah. Mm. And you get a sense of how she's losing control. She's losing her grip because, yeah, everything is decided for her. She's got no say in her own life. Yeah. Uh, and I think Kristen Stewart is so great at communicating that, yeah? Hmm. That sense of, you know, of lostness. She makes you empathize with her character, yeah, that she is going nuts. She's aware that she's going nuts, yeah. But at the same time, she's behaving perfectly reasonable, yeah, by her own standards. Yes, she's aware that it's very unreasonable to others. On the other hand, she's doing things that are excessive. She's cutting herself. Yeah, she's kind of bulimic and throwing up food between courses. Yeah, there are all these signs of her great unhappiness that I think are very well communicated. Mm, Although there is a whole element to the film, which is you're not sure how real that is, I think. So I should say right from the start, it says on screen at the beginning of the film, a fable based on a true tragedy. Yes. That's what it says. Um, So this is set over three days in December 91 at Sandringham. It's uh, close to her old home, where she grew up, uh, and it's Christmas with the royal family. And it's, I think, very clear that we're not supposed to be taking this as a document of, of these course. real three days yes. in 1991, of right? Course. This is, as it says, a fable. This We're in her head completely, and she is really losing her grip on reality. And 
it's funny when she arrives. She she drives to uh, Sandringham at the start and she gets lost and so on. She arrives late, and when you see these opening shots of the huge stately home, I said to you, it's like a hammer horror, mm. and it was flippant, right? But then later, I thought, I oh, know that there's actually something to that, right? It's not a horror film, but it has so many tropes that appear in horror films. It starts off with a journey to a destination. So many horror films do that, mm. the trip to somewhere. You know, the isolated manor in the mm. middle of nowhere. She's trapped constantly. Mm. She feels she's being watched. It's all about her paranoia. Um, she gets all these indications that she's being watched. Some of it is clear hallucination, what you see. You know, the, um, she tears her necklace because she's feeling... So, I mean, it's strings in the background. That's such a classic horror thing, the strings. Mm. Um, she tears her necklace in a kind of moment of intensity at dinner and all the pearls fall into her soup and she eats and crushes one of them like, and then she regurgitates it later. Clearly, we're not being asked to believe that this is real. No, the thing about cutting her arm and then moments later the, the mark is gone mm. and it's not highlighted but you just you can see there is no mark on her arm. But then there are you know, phrases she's cut herself again. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, um, the po- point is to say though that there is the use of horror tropes, horror filmmaking in here to communicate this heightened reality, this psychosis mm. that she's experiencing. Which I think is actually, you know, what started as a flippant comment actually had something to it. No, I agree. I see it. Yeah, I do see that. Are you really seeing what you're seeing? You know, is it all in your mind? Like, are these monsters real? Right. Right. The moment that you first see Anne Boleyn show up in a shot. So there's this book um, about Anne Boleyn that she finds in her uh, assigned room. It's and she starts reading it and the moment that she finds the book I'm thinking oh this is quite heavy handed the, the parallel it's drawing between the two of them and then it, you see Boleyn show up in a shot and, and then it becomes clear that she's imagining her I mean obviously Anne <laughs> Boleyn's not really there um, the moment that she does appear though it's just a cut to her and it's like in that moment in the go through film where you cut and there's something mm, there mm. and it's quite shocking because I really didn't expect anything like that that's the first indication I think that there is going to be a heightened reality here mm. and then as it goes on to to really emphasise that book and the parallels between her or that she feels between her and Anne Boleyn I thought this is so heavy handed that I actually kind of respect it. I respect the level of effort it's going to to draw this mm. between them. Yes, I, I don't know. I mean, so there are parallels made that Henry VIII also gave the same necklace to him and Jane Seymour. Uh, gave the same gift, yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, and, that, and that Boleyn was cast as um, someone who was having an affair, and the affair, the affair actually was being had by Henry VIII. Yes. Though I think the historical record would recount a little bit of a different story. <laughs> yeah, that she was also yeah involved uh, with someone, I think. But anyway, I, I, what I found really interesting about the film is that the institution of the monarchy, because it is about the institution and not the people, right? Because actually, in some ways, you are seeing the people being quite kind, might be pushing it. But, you know, yeah, trying to be agreeable and so on, right? Mm. I mean, uh, even Charles, yeah, go with your mother, right? Mm. Um, but the, the institution itself is monstrous, yeah, with kind of all the obligations, all the detail, all that surrounds it, that people have no privacy at all, right? So on the one hand, there's a concern 
with what the journalists outside and the paparazzo might be seeing through the windows, but actually you can't do anything inside the 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 palace that isn't being kind of reported and talked about and dissected by all and sundry. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I think the film is very clever about kind of doing those those binary and parallels. Yeah, kind of you know the the problem is positive is being outside, but really kind of yeah, what's positive being outside is really like you know the state of being inside. It's a it's a wonderful portrait of somebody losing well in the middle of a nervous breakdown that is caused by not having control over their own life. And I thought Christian Stewart was just phenomenal, really. I mean, I think it's a truly, truly great performance. So on the one hand, there's an element of impersonation, yeah? The tilt of the head, the eyes going up, you know, the voice. Mm. Um, But I think it just exceeds it. And there are, like, some close-ups where I think she's just extraordinary, you know, at kind of communicating her feeling um, and also looking both extremely beautiful... I think, but also looking like Diana, which you wouldn't think Kristen Stewart does. Yeah, so she's kind of like evoking her in in a way that is, mm. I think, really quite extraordinary, and that goes beyond impersonation. Yeah. The thing about Kristen Stewart's performance is, and I think it is really great, but I don't think she's asked to do enough different things. No, I don't agree. To me, she does. You know, so, I mean, she does, you know, incredible different levels of cracking up. Yeah, her body language at the dinner table, you know, extraordinary. Um, The warmth with her children. Yeah, it's like, you know, one of the characteristics of Diana, but very far from what I associate with Kristen Stewart anyway, you know. the uh, interactions with the Sally Hawkins character, yeah, the response, uh, you know. Yeah, the sort of handmaiden who she relates to. Yeah. Feel she can confide in. Yeah, but who's in love with her, yeah, and, and her response to it. I thought all of those were, like, quite incredible things that she does, really, you know, and you really sense, like, at various levels in the film where she's opening up or when she's completely shut down or when she's in the process of shutting down or when she's on the verge of madness, right? Like, kind of, you know, she, yeah, she's communicating all of that, like, almost transparently. I thought it was incredible. Yeah, she is. I think I think it's an issue of tone. I don't think the tone change. I mean, maybe that's maybe that is kind of the point that it's this. There's a feeling of constant intensity to her paranoia um, that is really only um, alleviated when she spends time with the boys yes. and she, they, you know they have that they have that candlelit yes game with each other in and it's night. not paranoia when it's real because the thing is that the film well all right psychosis um, yeah the film is telling you that she is under constant surveillance she's not even allowed to choose the clothes she wears on private occasions i mean it's a family gathering mm. right? it's not a state dinner or anything Right, yeah, so kind of, you know... Yeah, paranoia's not the right word, but you know what I mean. It's, yeah. it, 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 it's an intensity of uh, of psychosis that is being evoked almost constantly, and I felt that it lacked variety. Um, I um, didn't... I, I mean, I must say, I, I did not. And for me, the comparison with the film, the... the Mothering Sunday. Yeah, The Mothering Sunday, is that these are two films that I expected very little of, 
And that really surprised me. Did you really expect very little of this? Because I know you I said did. at the start you have the kind of ishy relationship with Pablo Larian, but yeah, I've always had the impression that you at least find things to you know respect and yeah, yeah, no. interest in. Okay, well that's what I mean. Yeah, you know I expected it to be interesting. Right. Yeah, um, and you know I was curious to see what he'd done, but I'd also told you that you know, and I'd forgotten about Emma. But all the other his other films that I could think of were films that you know at best I admired, but I really didn't warm to any of them, mm. right? I mean, one year I even taught No, right? Because No is so interesting. Uh, I mean, I love Gael Garcia Bernal, who's the star, and it's all about using the same marketing that you use to sell Pepsi Cola or Coca Cola to convince the Chilean populace to vote against Pinochet and to vote for democracy. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so you know you'd think it was would be right up my alley and I still didn't warm to it you know <laughs> fair enough uh, so so I mean I think I mean I'm not saying this is his best film but this is the film of his that I have liked the most uh, it's, it's that emotional openness and I think it's Kristen Stewart who, who, who makes it so for me mm. you know I mean you feel connected to her right yeah you do uh, you do you do, even though it is, for me it is mostly that she's just on constantly on the verge of tears. Well, that's true, yeah. Um, but you know, I think that is also the character as we remember her, yeah. You know, always like either withdrawn, yeah, uh, or teary-eyed, or lonely, or yeah. Mm. You know, all the famous iconic images of her alone, you know, in front of the Taj Mahal. Yeah, or in the interview with Shabib, like, you know, with that voice looking up, you know, the soft voice. Yeah, like, I mean, I think, um, yeah, that is... It must be said, those aren't images that, that have any meaning to me, because my recollection of her is that I was nine years old when she died. Right. You know, so my recollection of her is as someone who you subsequently learn about as you grow up. And, you know, she's, she's still... A constant presence in your life because she's still everywhere in the British press. Mm. But you know, my, my my memory of her is going downstairs to watch TV in the morning, yeah, children's telly, and every channel showed the same thing, and going into my mum and dad's room and saying every channel showing the same thing, what's mm. going on, and that's how they found out that she died because I woke them up. Yes. Well, no, I remember. I remember when she was introduced to the press, that famous shot, you know, before she became media savvy, of her. Uh, being filmed in front of the kindergarten where she was teaching and her dress is transparent. Yeah, so she was standing either, I forget whether it was in front of the sun or behind the sun, but actually, you know, the shot went right through her cotton print dress and you could see all the outline of the legs and yeah, it was a a famous, you know, image of her. Uh, Kind of Madonna-ish actually because she also she was holding children but then she had, you know, these incredible legs. <laughs> and she was wearing a, you know, a dress that came yeah, almost to the ankle. But it was just, yeah, the transparency against the sunlight. Yeah. Um, so I remember that. I, we watched the wedding on television, you know. Um, so we watched the press hound her in the kindergarten doors before she got married. Uh, all the stuff about the dress, the wedding dress, which... And all those images are deployed in the film, yeah? Mm. You have, at the end, her, you know, wearing the famous Emmanuel dress, you know, coming out of her own house, 
you know, and kind of in, in a way you get a sense of like shattered dreams and this like, you know, palatial kind of life that has caused only unhappiness. And that's the fable and the tragedy. <laughs> Do you think the film is um, uh, one note in how it's, uh, I don't want to sound combative, but it sides with her? Uh, uh, no, is... I don't, because I actually, I mean, the film is less respectful of the Queen than you're used to, right? Because it's very clear from this film that the Queen does not like her. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and the Queen, in a way, is her enemy. Yeah, that everything revolves around the Queen, you know, and, you know, she's got no say in anything, Diana, right? But also, you know, the little that you see of the interrelationship between the Queen and Diana, you know, the Queen is always impatient or looking askance or looking sour at Diana, right? Which is not something that you've either... Well, I think it's very important to keep in mind that, I think at least, the film is absolutely set within Diana's head. Sure. You know, we're seeing what she feels and believes Mm -hmm. and uh, understands. Yes. But I was going to say that aside from that... The other members of the family that you see, you see them behaving quite well. And actually, I was surprised by how uh, sympathetically Charles was treated. Yeah. Mm. Um, But what about the relationship with the staff? This is what I'm thinking about. You know, she particularly with the the head chef, who she kind of has this little sit down with, and he kind of tells her, "We're all behind you, and we support you, and we want you to survive." And when we talk about the other members of the family, it's gossip, and we're laughing, but no one laughs about you. Mm. And there's this kind of thing that. Does Diana supposed to have this kind of common touch to yes. her? Yes. Well, that was part of her persona, wasn't it? She did have a common touch. <sighs> Common-ish. I mean, uh, uh, it, it feels silly in the film. Well, you know, I... She ends up going to a KFC with kids. Yeah, I, I don't... I don't... Uh, um, felt almost parodic. I mean, no, I don't think it's parodic. I mean, that is the way that she was represented, and that is the way that she represented herself. I mean, on the one hand, it's, you know... It might be ridiculous. I mean, she is the daughter of, you know, the Earl of whatever, Earl Spencer, you know. But uh, the, certainly, you know, the persona in the press was that. Yeah, she was like really a Sloan Ranger and she worked in a kindergarten and, you know, kind of she wasn't too bright. Uh, you know, when, when she went out with the kids, she took them on the log boats in the amusement park. And, you know, uh, and, you know, one of the things that the film says you know, I'm very middle class, you know, I love Phantom of the Opera and eating KFC, and I'm sure that's not... I mean, that is, you know, kind of... Well, I'm not really talking about real life, though. I'm, talk- I'm talking about how it comes across in the film, how the film handles that aspect of her character or her persona. It, it seems quite silly. And actually, I suppose I would use the phrase again, it's um, heavy-handed. Uh I don't know. I mean, really, when you're dealing with royalty, is anything heavy-handed? I mean, you know, so I was coming from it from a slightly different perspective, you know, because I love the use of the clothes, you know, in the palace, actually, and stuff like that. But then I was thinking, oh, the jewels look so fake, (laughs) right? Like, that tiara is, like, you know, made of glass beads, right? (laughs) Why didn't they rent a real thing? (laughs) You know, so... I think it depends on what perspective you're coming from. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it, it must It doesn't feel heavy-handed to me. Sure. Oh, that's fair enough. Um, it did to me. Another interesting... and maybe, Well, this is... Sorry, before you go, no, you go know on. what I really disliked? Yeah, go on. And I think it's almost the only thing in the film that I really disliked was the little brat who played Prince William. 
<laughs> what, the kid? Yeah, the actor? it was awful. Okay. You know, in a complete ham. And there was a scene at the end where they're driving in the car and he's constantly looking at Kristen Stewart wanting to be in the shot. Where you see the kid, <laughs> you know, where you see the Prince Harry character, yeah, yeah at the back, and he's doing his thing. Well, right? he's, he's behind the headrest. I couldn't even see him. No, but, you know, a, a, a more bratish or Hollywoodish or, you know, child actor would have been hamming it up to get to be in the shot, like the one in the, like the guy who played Prince William, and he's not, you know. So, so that is the only thing I really dislike the casting of that actor. Right. Do you think the kid who played Harry was all right? Yeah, I, did. I quite liked him. Yes, I liked him. Although I think it's interesting that basically the only, with the exception, I suppose, of one with Sally Hawkins, the only other relationship she has that is meaningful and that she feels kind of comfortable in. Is the one with her kids. Yes. Um, she really connects with them, really relates to them, and actually, there's. I really like the thing with the scales at the end. So there's yes. thing about the scales. There's this. There's this seat that you sit on, old-fashioned scales at Sandringham, and apparently, I have no idea if this is based on reality. Um, it is. It's uh, a tradition that you go there and you get weighed, and then after Christmas you get weighed again. And you have to have put on three. Pounds, pounds or three stone, three pounds. Yeah. Three otherwise, stones a bit. otherwise, you haven't enjoyed yourself. Exactly, that's how much you've enjoyed yourself. And so she does that. And she feels quite pressured into it because being weighed as a woman is just one of those things that people are looking at, you know. Um, and then when she leaves, uh, she runs off with the kids, and she weighs herself with the kids on her. So she weighs like seventeen stone after mm. that. And that's a really nice way of of bookending that, you know, finishing that off. That that she's enjoyed herself so much, she's got her kids with her. Mm. That's so important to her. That's really nice, but I but I thought maybe it, it, to some degree speaks to her kind of mental state that she's comfortable with children and having this childish relationship, whereas you know with the with the adults in the house there is no connection. Now, actually, she's being watched like a child. Yeah, I mean that's she, how she is. That's how it makes her feel. Yeah, she's being watched like a child. She's considered a problem child. Um, she's conscious that she is being a problem. Yes, her constant lateness, yeah, and so on, um, which you know can be seen as like a sign of disrespect to the queen and therefore the crown, yeah, um, and which is often perceived as like really a very small demand in relation, you know, to the sacrifices that other people make, like soldiers, yeah, which are kind of it mm -hmm. is you know something that's brought into play, so it's seen as being willful and selfish and. It's yeah. an interesting opening to the film with regards to soldiers because um, you start off with these shots of the Sandringham estate and the soldiers are bringing in military mm. uh, crates. Right, They sell like M1A1 rifle on the side and things. You go, what the fuck is going on here? And it's only when you get into the house and everything's finally opened up, you realise lobsters, cakes, drink. Mm. You know, that's what this all contains. But it's, it's a military operation. It's it running all this at the start. That's right. Uh, and I think you're meant to see the whole thing as being run like a military operation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and in fact, it's not the Queen, the head of the armed forces. Uh, I think, like, technically, yeah. And yeah. and the Timothy Spall character, who's kind of the... He runs the Sandringham Estate or something a bit like that. He's brought in for extra security. That's right. And um, and he's kind of running the, the operation. He's a former Black Watch, mm. as he explains to Dan at one point. And that's one of the times when the theme of being watched is... Uh, very apparent and very explicit. Mm. Um, like that's his job as as a military man to oversee yes. her. Yes, I mean I don't know, you know, because I am like somebody who's very interested in history and royalty and royal biography and 
you know, I'm an archetypal kind of gay queen in that regard. And, you know, the, the tragedy also is that, you know, she's not interested in power and she's not very clever, right? So all she's got is her feelings, right? If she were smarter, she would play the game better. Mm. Yes, I mean, she would show up on time for dinner and then do her own thing later and manage to carve out both, you know, an interesting private life for herself and be able to do things that she wouldn't normally be able to do outside of that context and so on. But, you know, she's all about her feelings, yeah, and her, yeah. Mm, acting uh, out. Yeah, and acting out. And, you know, in a kind of a very 80s valley girl way, actually. Yeah, <laughs> where you're the center of the universe and it is all about your feelings and you can't see a way beyond that, right? So I think kind of, you know, the film is interesting in that way because, you know, uh, she's, she's very sensitive and she's very honest and so on. But also, she's not worldly and she's not clever. Mm. Um, I want to bring up, I think, what's a minor point, but an interesting one. And it's another comparison with Mothering Sunday. And it's that in the Mothering Sunday podcast, I talked about the aspect ratio. And it's a non-standard aspect ratio. And I estimated it was 14 to 9. And then I saw this and I thought, is my aim really off? Or have I just seen the same thing? Because it would be very unusual to see that twice in one day. Uh. Um, and so I looked it up and I was offered the estimate. It's 15 9, apparently, right. which is not quite widescreen. But it is this, it, it's this, it's this non-standard aspect ratio, and they're both in that. Okay. And well, that makes sense to me because it's not quite, it's not four three, but it's a more intimate ratio. There's, there's something that there's a kind of slight squatness to the image compared to what you expect. Mm. I think it really works for both films, and I kind of I wonder whether it's going to be something that we see more of. It just oh. seems so unusual to say to see the same thing twice in one day um, that I haven't seen before. No. You know, I don't remember seeing before. Yeah, so well, it works. Yeah, know. I agree. Uh, and I think both films actually look astonishingly beautiful. They um, do. I really love the way this one looks. And it has its very heavy use of wide angle. Um, that, uh, again, is something that conveys psychosis mm. quite effectively. And it's that's another little bit of a horror thing. Um, you know, the, the one real big difference here is that, um, you know, she she escapes and gets a happy ending. Well, except we know she doesn't. Well, um, but uh, but it yeah. does. It, I mean, by the end, it seems like it's almost set in a parallel reality. She runs off to with the, with the kids and just sets up her own little private life in London. You know. Well, but the thing is that yeah, the, the film relies on our knowledge also of what we know happens later, mm. right? So you know that it's a brief respite. That yeah, this moment of triumph and so on. I mean, I, I'm end. not sure if that's... I do get what you mean, but the thing is, the film is such an obvious fantasy, not just the fact that it I, tells you so at the start, that is it not, is it not like... Is it not escapism at the end? This wishful thinking of, imagine this happy ending for Diana. No, because we know what the ending was. I mean, you know, the film kind of touches on, you know, the Diana we know from the media, right, on events of her life that we recognise, on, her, the you know, the childhood... Uh, you know, that we also recognize the relationship with Charles and Camilla that we know of, you know, the queen is there, the corgis are there. I mean, you know, I don't think, I mean, if it was going to be a fable in the sense that you say, it would be, you know, very different. But it, it puts this very highly stylized spin on everything, takes us into this, as I say, psychosis, this, these imaginings, these hallucinations and so on. To the point where you do start to question how much is real within the context of the film, how much is mm. imagined, and so on. That's why I think you just, for me, 
I felt like it's giving into escapism at the end. And so, no, I, I didn't feel that way. I mean, I think it was like, um, I mean, uh, it might be worth exploring the ending because we know it's the ending to the film, mm. you know, but it's not the ending to her story. The ending to her story, we know. And actually, I think this is also what makes the film so interesting and um, evocative, really, you know, because we know she was on the verge of cracking up. You know, the film has a, a kind of a Marilyn Monroe thing, you know, that it really is all about her beauty, her pain, yeah, her 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 inability to find fulfillment and meaning, you know, uh, and so the film leaves us on a high, but it leaves us on a high when we know that will not be the end of the story. And it's part of what makes it, you know, the tragedy, really. Yeah, it does, the, the film is not the triumph of Diana. It's, you know, fable and tragedy, right? <laughs> you know, so... Um, well, a fable based on a true tragedy. But, you know, things that are based on can divert. I think it's a film that is not interested in the end of her life. It's a film that indulges in, you know, at the end, it indulges in the pure happiness of this moment and gives, well, gives us that to, to leave on. Yes, but that's not divorced from what we know. I mean, everybody knows what happened to Diana, right? So the sense of her being hunted and pursued and so on, yeah, will exacerbate. That's the tragedy. I mean, this is just, you know, kind of a punctuation mark on a story that is to be continued and that we know, mm. right? Um so I think where the film offers like a valuable insight is that it puts you inside her head, yeah, for this moment, yeah, which is a kind of a transitional moment. It's a moment, you know, where there's an opportunity of escape. But actually, what's rendered really tragic is that we know she won't. Hmm. I also want to talk about the music a little bit. I think hmm. the music I've briefly mentioned strings. Um, music is certainly something that contributes to the sense of psychosis, if not outright the sense of horror hmm. that I've been mentioning. Uh, the music's by Johnny Greenwood, and you know when his name came up in the credits, so I went, "Oh, that explains it." Because there's this combination of um, kind of uh, sort of classical sounding string arrangements, and then a trumpet that occasionally comes over the top, blaring jazz, and it's kind of out of time and out of sync. And it made me think about Homeland mm. the TV series with uh, Claire Danes. The opening of every episode of Homeland, the theme music is this weird off-kilter jazzy number that was also used in the soundtrack, I think, quite heavily in the first season or two, and then it stopped doing that. But it was all about Claire Danes' character works for the CIA, and she's this kind of genius, and she's relentless at, at, at tracking this, this guy who's come back from, uh, from the war, and they think maybe he's... Um, well, she suspects hmm. that he's been turned by the enemy. Um, and there's this strand in it about her mental illness. She's bipolar, and... Uh, when she refuses to take her meds, you know, that's when she's more creative. It's kind of a fairly common trope um, in, in uh, <laughs> of men mental illness in film and TV that, that, you know, the meds cloud you, cloud your judgment. Mm -hmm. So you go off them and then you, you, you start to behave irresponsibly and dangerously, but that's where you hit your genius. And that's when this jazz would come in, mm. you know. Um, and Spencer is certainly not doing that much, that heavily with mental illness, although I think it's quite clear that Diana is depressed mm. and, you know, I, I, I took seriously and as real the, the talk of her cutting herself, at least yes. within the context of mm. the film, don't know about real life. Um, and is the way the jazz comes in, it's always heightening, it's always heightening her psychosis in those moments. It's, it's something that 
the music is something that builds up and builds up and builds up and then jazz starts to come in over the top and that's when she's at her most frantic. Mm. Um, it was unexpected. I, I mean, I, well, I, I didn't... I suppose I didn't know what to expect of the film, but I didn't expect that. I thought it worked extremely effectively in heightening mm. the mood. I think the film also has incredible images. You know, that image of Diana with that, you know, incredible white and gold you know, fluffy long dress, uh, bent over the toilet bowl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so that image of like, you know, this great wealth and beauty and delicacy and, and the toilet yeah. was, is like very powerful. So, uh, and I think the film is full of images like that, actually. Um, that kind of contrasts the elegant with the crude. Well, that tell you that, you know, within this great wealth and elegance and so on, there is like a physical, tortuous, yeah, mm. kind of vomiting out of things that you know you can't quite express or contain. Yeah, mm. um, that it's unbearable. Yeah, and that it kind of comes out. Yeah, physical is the word. No, so. it's it's a very tactile film. Yeah, uh, it's also I think very um, worked through on the symbolic level, right? So, you know, basically, you're meant to see Diana, some kind of pheasant, yeah, that's beautiful and has colorful plumage, yeah, but actually can't fly away, and it's just basically there to fulfill her function, and, you know, have the beaters come and take her out and be shot, <laughs> which is, you know. Um, yeah, and she says to the pheasant at one point, she's talking to a pheasant, if you're in the city, you should go to London, because they'll look at you there and they'll marvel at your plumage, yes. but here they'll just shoot you. Yeah. You know, which is, yeah, it's how she feels. Yeah. It's pretty on the nose. It is, and in some ways it's what happens to her later in Paris, right? You know, uh, yeah, chase, 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 and... Um, <laughs> so, so I, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot to like. Uh, and really, the, the, the most extraordinary thing about it is really Kristen Stewart. Mm. Well, they're talking about Oscar nomination as well they might. Well, I mean, I, I, I think it is the most astonishing and unexpected performance I've seen this year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, think I was thinking she's she's obviously someone who's had her own experience of being kind of shredded by the press, mm. um, and I've no doubt that feeds into her performance here. Yeah, and her understanding of the role. Mm. Um, it does feel actually quite personal, a little bit like Red Sparrow did with Jennifer Lawrence. Um, because that was that was after the nude photos leak. Mm. It kind of it wasn't just her; it was a lot of people. But she was obviously just about the most famous in that hack, and that was a film about, well, just to a degree at least, about her reclaiming her image of her body and her mm. power in it. Mm. Um, yes, that was more potent. I think this is this is a little less direct about that, but I think it's a factor. Mm. And anyway, it's a truly great performance. Um, and I think a revelation. Yeah, so let's wrap it up. Um, I'd say, I, I, it, it was my least favourite of the three that I've seen. I thought Jackie was terrifically interesting. And it, mind you, I haven't seen it since it came out of the cinema, but I remember being really blown away by it and really, you know, I felt so connected to the space that that uh, Jackie Kennedy was in during, you know, it set around her husband's death, obviously. Um, and Emma was a really surprising and Emma beautiful film that we saw. Yeah. This, um, I did find lessons, but Christmas Stewart is great and it is a good film. Yeah. I think this is the one that uh, that I've 
I'm not saying it's the best one, but it's the one that I've liked the most. Hmm. So uh, I highly recommend. And yeah, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.